This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. So when anyone talks about how do we pay for it, how do we pay for the Green New Deal, how do we pay for a stimulus COVID package, how do we pay for Medicare for all, there's plenty of wealth in this country that can pay for those things. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, Tacoma's talk show, we are so happy to have Beth Dolio speaking with us. Beth is a candidate for the 10th Congressional District seat in Washington. She is a neighbor down in Olympia. Uh, she has been in the State House of Representatives representing her district in Olympia, and she is now running for Congress. So Beth, welcome. We're so pleased to have you. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Great. Uh, so um, I haven't really been doing candidate interviews. Um, that is something that we do on Citizen Tacoma, but I really wanted to do this one because so many of the issues that are important to your campaign are things that I think is really important that we talk more about. Um, so I had reached out to Beth and I also reached out to Marilyn Strickland. If she is interested in doing an episode, we will do one with her as well. But so far, I haven't heard back from her campaign. Uh, and I'll ask more or less the same questions of both so that if voters are interested, they can tune in and they can listen to these podcasts and get a little bit more information about the candidates, get a little feel for people, which is kind of a challenge right now um, where our in-person contacts are so limited. Um, so I'll just start, Beth, with my first question, and that is, um, well, actually, let me do a pre-question question. That is, describe to me, you know, what is the 10th Congressional District? I know it's our newest district. I know Danny Heck has been uh, the only uh, member of Congress from that seat because it was uh, he was the first one elected to it. But what are sort of the uh, parameters of that Congressional right. District? Yeah, so Denny Heck has served in the district uh, for the last eight years, and that is when the district was created. We got an additional district, District 10, and it's, uh, it, it starts down here uh, in Mason County. It, it, it takes in Shelton and then much of Thurston County. Um, I think a little bit of the south end of the county is not included in the 10th. That's actually in the third. That remains in the third district, which is Jamie Herrera-Butler's district now. Uh, it takes in, it encompasses the entire 22nd legislative district, which is the legislative district that I serve in in the legislature right now and have for the last four years. And then it goes up and it takes in, um, you know, Puyallup and Sumner and uh, DuPont and Lakewood and Furcrest, a little bit of South Tacoma. Um, and, you know, basically those Eastern, you know, uh, suburbs of, of Tacoma. So, um uh, Stillicom is another another community, mm -hmm. University Place. So lots of lovely communities that I am looking forward to representing. Excellent. You know, a little bit of a lot, right? Like it's got, yeah. you know, it's got rural, rural, suburban, um, some downtown core, you know, urban areas, um, very diverse. And the other big thing about it is that JBLM is fully encompassed within the 10th Congressional District, which was intentional, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was an intentional uh, move. So I do, you know, super important that uh, the person representing this district um, understand and work very closely with our military uh, and veteran communities um, and has a big impact on this district. Oh, that's, that's, that is very interesting. Well, what would you say, you know, since you've been, you know, out talking to people, looking at the district, um, doing all of the work that a campaign requires, what would you say are about the three to four most critical issues or problems that the district is facing right now? Well, you know, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I think it's sort of the issues that most of the, most of us are are uh, confronting, right? I mean, COVID-19, the pandemic, the downturn in the economy, um, this is having a huge impact on working families, low-income communities, and small businesses. I mean, another beloved downtown restaurant here in Olympia just 
announced, you know, that they are closed for good. And oh, which, which one is that? Uh, Dillinger's, which oh, you know, yeah. loved, loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was out talking with uh, the owners of Three Mags, which is another business. And, you know, they have been incredibly entrepreneurial in terms of figuring out how to make it work. Um in this environment. So like, you know, providing family meals that you can opt into, which we're going to do as a family mm-hmm. that I know about it. Um, you know, doing the pickup, do, you know, they've taken over some space outside of their restaurant um, and have picnic tables set up uh, socially distanced. And so they've just been really entrepreneurial, um, but they're hanging on 75% down wow. from or last year in terms of businesses, in terms of business. And so, you know, the federal government has a role here and the Senate has been sitting on their hands, not acting on the HEROES Act. You know, these small businesses need some lifeline right now. We mm-hmm. need another round of uh, the, uh, the, the um, PPP loans that, that they, that, you know, free mags have taken advantage of. Um, we need to really figure out how to make sure people are uh, have health insurance and access to health insurance because so much of that is an issue. And that, that is another, you know, that sort of moves me right into, you know, another issue that we are hearing when we are out talking with, um, with voters in this district. Healthcare is top of mind for people. Yeah. And, you know, everyone knows that we have a broken system before COVID and now those inequities have just been made so much more clear and so much worse. Mm-hmm. Our healthcare tied to our employment, that has got to go. We need to move towards a Medicare for all system. And the call for that is growing in this district. There's no question about that. Um, housing, you know, we're seeing so many people struggle uh, with affording rent. Uh, I think we just had an article in today's newspaper in the Olympian that the median house price now, I think is, I think it said 390,000. Yeah. People, you know, that is, you know, it's just grown and grown and grown. And so we really need to work on um, driving dollars in to build affordable housing, um, to make sure that our homeless population has homes. Um, and that something that I've done a tremendous amount of work on in the state legislature and intend to be, you know, a major advocate for housing to follow in Denny Heck's footsteps to work on housing at the federal level to really make the federal government a, um, a real partner in this because it's really fallen on state and locals. And then the final, I can't help but mention mm-hmm. air quality is, I don't know, you know, across this district, it ranges from uh, unhealthy to hazardous. Sumner, Lakewood, Mima Mounds, Little Rock, you know, right here in the heart, well, in the, not the heart, the whole 10th congressional district, we have fires raging. Our mm-hmm. earth is on fire. And we have got to elect a climate champion, um, someone who has experience like me, who stood up to the fossil fuel industry, and actually won. You know, I stood up to the coal industry when they had seven coal export facilities uh, proposed here, and we stopped all of them dead in their tracks. Mm-hmm. I'm to stand up to the fossil fuel industry, and clearly that needs to happen now. And then actually have, you know, real hands-on um, knowledge of climate policy in all the different sectors, buildings, electricity, transportation and how we move that forward. I have been in the ledge. I have been an advocate at climate solutions, working on policy for the last 13 years and have spent four years doing that as a legislator. And I just want to get in there and work with, um, you know, a number of colleagues on really moving forward climate, climate legislation at scale. Well, let me drill down on some of those issues with you and I'll take the climate change first because I agree, you know, what, and this happens every has been happening every year, but things that seem to be sort of more long range concerns suddenly come home when we're in fire season and we see how devastating it is both to people who are having their you know homes impacted and and just all of us trying to breathe and survive in this um, horrible air quality um, 
and I'll tell you, in Tacoma right now, we have an issue teed up before our city council for um, a Targa. They, they've actually, it's a, the company has um, some massive store oil storage facilities down on the Tacoma Tide Flats, mm-hmm. and they bring in um, huge numbers of oil trains to probably come through Olympia and, and continue on to Tacoma. I, I think they did a, didn't they do a, they did an infrastructure upgrade to be able to allow more uh, oil uh, trains to come in. That was happening kind of with all of our oil refineries. And we were yes. stop a few from actually getting those permits to do that infrastructure upgrade. Well, and that's exactly what we're looking at in Tacoma. They, they have a request um, to the you know planning commission to upgrade, to destroy a number of the older oil tanks and build more capacity. So replacing it's replacing the oil tanks, but it really is also increasing the capacity to store more oil. And you know, we would like to, I would like to see the city council get involved in this. I think they will not. It's very hard to stop these processes because the planning commission looks at it as though, well, it's currently used for this. You want it. So it's a very sim. it's the same use. It's just capacity. And we can't really say no to that, but we're never going to be able to, I mean, that, that's, that's the frustration I see on climate change is how do you stop that continuous We've always done it, so we have to do it some more. What? How do you? What do you do about things like that? I mean, you know, we're in a hole, and when you're in a hole, the last thing you want to do is dig the hole deeper. And large fossil fuel infrastructure projects, really, we should draw a line in the sand around those, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, and if we are continuing to put resources into building those facilities, then we are not putting resources into moving away from fossil fuel because we need to build out a a massive infrastructure and put things in place, which is, by the way, a lot of jobs um, if we are to move away from these, from from what we're seeing with the wildfires. I mean, these are only going to get worse. They're only going to get more intense. We've seen it with, you know, all the weather uh, across the nation, whether that be hurricanes, tornadoes, um, you know, uh, wildfires, drought, it's all going to be more and more intense because that's baked in. And the last thing we need to do is to really be building, you know, more of the same. Because what happens is, is then, then those emissions from those, you know, that expansion of, of the oil tanks get locked in for the next 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or, or a, like a coal export facility in particular, mm-hmm. you know, that locks that in. Those facilities are going to keep operating for the next 50 years. Um, and so I really feel like we, we really have to stop building fossil fuel infrastructure and start building out, you know, our transition away from fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Technology is there. We can do this. We've, 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 we've done bigger things in the past. Um, you know, we've put a person on the moon. We've, uh, you know, we won, you know, we've won war, World War II. You know, we've done lots of of very, very significant things and, and we can do this, but it does take people coming to the table. It does take the fossil fuel industry to be creative and figure out how we can, you know, make sure that people who are employed in those, um, in, in those industries right now have a transition plan out um, so that they can put food on their families' tables. That is so such an important thing. But if people continue to put their head in the sand, and not really lift it up and say, how do we support this transition? How do we support people who are engaged in these industries now? Then we're not going to be, then we're not going to have the plans in place to do that. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's how I feel um, about it. Yeah. Uh, tell me some of the plans that you have or ideas that you have. So if you are, were elected to the seat, what, what would you try to do to sort of, you know, sort of immediately start digging in and developing some of the actual plans that would be helpful? Well, the nice thing is that I've been engaged in doing some really great legislation here in Washington state. Um, I was front and center in the 100% uh, clean electricity bill. So that puts us on a path to be basically net, net carbon neutral by 2030 in this state. Um, and then fully off fossil fuels, you know, from our electric sector by 2045. The, the really, the, 
the beautiful thing about that bill is that from the beginning, labor was at the table as what as were equity groups, you know, because we know that the impacts of climate change fall more harshly on communities of color, on low-income communities. That's where, you know, these infrastructure, um, these, you know, polluting industries tend to be built. It's also, you know, uh, tribes who are living on the coast who are having to, you know, relocate. Um, it is just much more of a significant impact. And so making sure that they're at the table, that they are, that they are within the policy is very important because as we transition out, we need to make sure and keep track of costs on, on the individual in terms of energy costs. And that is an equity issue. It is a fundamental equity issue. And so within the bill, there are equity measures that make sure that as we make this transition, there, that, that, that uh, you know, people of color and low-income communities are at the table helping us craft how we make this transition. And it requires that, you know, it's the first time that it's required utilities to actually, you know, make sure that that uh, when there is a rise in utility prices that that low-income communities are preferenced and, and dollars will go into them. Um, and then finally, labor was at the table and there's a really great provision in there that says the better your labor standards, the better your tax, tax incentives are gonna be. Um, so it's a graduated tax incentive. It's got three layers. And as your labor standards get better, your tax incentive gets better. You know, labor sees themselves right in that bill. And we want to make sure that as we're building out our fossil fuel infrastructure, we're doing that with good family wage jobs and safe working conditions. And that means that we most of those projects, if not all of them, should be done by uh, union, union workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to follow up also on your comments about housing and how that is a significant issue for the district, I, I would say for the, for our whole region. Uh, what are some of the things that you would like to see changed or what you would like to be able to do to try to impact both the homelessness issues and housing? And, uh, and I'll start by this premise saying that I think that there is sometimes this idea that there are some people who have been homeless for a long time who prefer to live, that it's a lifestyle choice. I very much doubt that is true. I think even the most free-spirited individual would prefer to be in an apartment or someplace where they're warm and secure at night. Um, but that, I think, is used as an excuse for why we don't ever try to have 100% people housed. And I And I think that's a cop out, but uh, tell me what your ideas would be for, for housing and for homelessness solutions. Well, let me start by just talking a little bit about the difference between myself and my opponent in this. Okay. So um, I was in the legislature working tenaciously day in and day out to pass a bill that provides access to $1.5 billion to our local government, city and counties. They can opt into that. It's money that they can choose to take a councilmanic vote, to, you know, to vote as a council, to do a small tax increase, to actually put money into housing for our very poor, 60% AMI and below, and into mental health. I was able to pass that. It was the number one priority of the Housing Alliance of, of uh, Washington. And um, at the same time, my opponent was, as the CEO of the Seattle Chamber of Commerce, the city council had already passed a, a corporate tax to directly fund housing for Seattle. Mind you, there's 4,000 children in Seattle and growing who are homeless. And she, you know, she was the spokesperson for stopping that tax from coming into effect. And in fact, we didn't have a tax. She said there was enough resources, Seattle should just reprioritize their budget. You know, this problem is not going to be solved by reprioritizing our budget. I'm sorry, it's just not. We need to bring new resources into building, you know, into building permanently affordable housing in our communities. 
And that is what I will be committed to at the federal level. Now, there's all kinds of policy tweaks that need to be made. And, you know, our veterans voucher program isn't working. We have 500, you know, we have 500 homeless veterans and 300 vouchers available that are going unused. Mm-hmm. And I want to change that. You know, it, it, hap- it just so happens that, you know, because our, our housing prices are so high, those vouchers just don't work. Yeah. So we, we, need to, we need to figure that out. We need to change that. We need to make sure that the federal government is playing a much more significant role in helping to provide housing. We need to grow our voucher program, which hasn't, you know, hasn't expanded um, for many, many years now. Um, and we need to bring new resources into building housing for, the, for, for folks who are, um, find themselves without a home. Um, I think it's a really big difference between my opponent and I and how our record really demonstrates a, a, re- a very different approach to how we would deal with, with housing. And, you know, like you said, I think, you know, she is on record in terms of sort of drawing that distinction between, um, you know, people who really want to be on the streets and people who are um, um, homeless. And, um, you know, we, we have a responsibility as, as one of the richest nations in the world to make sure that there is housing available for every single person in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, on the healthcare issues, I'll be interested in hearing a little bit more about your ideas on the um, medical care and health insurance and what we need to do moving forward. And I think, I hope we are at the moment where um, Congress can look very seriously at this because our current pandemic has really shown the deepest flaw of tying our insurance to our employment. You know, suddenly millions of people are unemployed just when we have a pandemic going, just when it's the worst possible time for families to be worried about their health insurance coverage. Um, so tying it to employment, it just doesn't work. Um, there are other you know, other plans available. Um, and I and I keep thinking, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to duplicate what um, Medicare already does. You know, all of our doctors know how to bill Medicare. The, the codes all exist. Everything is there. I don't know why we can't make this work for everyone. But tell me about what you would like to see in the healthcare arena. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I am a strong proponent of Medicare for All. Um, I believe that every person in this country deserves to have access um, to good health care that is comprehensive, that includes vision, dental, hearing, um, that allows for mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that right now our system is broken. And even if you have good insurance, I have some friends uh, that had state insurance, one, one work for the state, one work for uh, a union, and good insurance, got, got laryngeal cancer, $10,000 of unexpected costs that weren't covered by their insurance. Yeah. Had to start a GoFundMe campaign, like so many people who find themselves in that situation. We're literally funding healthcare with GoFundMe campaigns when the average CEO, the average healthcare CEO is making $7.7 million annually. We can't continue to have a system that operates on profits. We cannot, we cannot afford to continue that because that's, if you're, a, if you're a for-profit company, you're a for-profit company because you're trying to make profits. And healthcare is not about profits. It's about providing the best possible healthcare to each individual and, and those decisions between the doctor or the nurse or the medical professional and their patient. Um, so, you know, I think, again, my opponent does for option. A public option doesn't cover, does not get to universal health care. She wants universal health care, but she talks about a public option and lowering the age a little bit on Medicare. Like that's not universal health care. The only way we get to universal health care is by having a public system. and. You know, I'm a strong advocate for that. I'm glad to have Representative Camilla Jayapals and Representative Katie Porters, uh, two leading voices in Congress on Medicare for All. Um, I'm glad to have their endorsement, and I really look forward to working with them to try and move that forward. Now, that said, (laughs) the path to Medicare for All is a fraught path. It is not a clear path. Although, like you said, the polling on it is, is 
is really cha- has changed in part because of the pandemic and in part just because even before the pandemic, people were like my friends were in these situations and they recognized that the system just doesn't work. Um, and so um, perhaps with public opinion and you know continued waging of a campaign, we can get there. But if not, we certainly need to have negotiating powers with the pharmaceutical companies. Again, pharmaceutical companies need to have some checks and balances on what they are. They're super important right now, right? They're trying to develop a vaccine. Like, you know, there's a lot of good in pharmaceutical companies, but their profit margin is not what is good. It is too high and and we need to figure that out and we need to have some negotiating power with that. Um, so that that that's just, you know, and we, we would need to figure out how to make sure that people with pre-existing conditions and we would need to sort of move towards um, trying to bring um, folks who have lost their health insurance back onto some sort of an option like we have here, like Apple Health here in, in Washington. Yeah. And I was proud to support and vote for the, the bill that created Cascade Care here in Washington State, uh, which was a very creative uh, bill that we passed, I think, in 2019 that creates a public option here in Washington State. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Um, well, that brings me a little bit to um, talking about covid and some other issues, but first let's take a short break and then we'll come back, okay? Hello, this is producer Doug Mackey of Channel 253. The worst earthquake I've been in was the 2001 Nisqually quake. What I remember most about that day was watching the building shake, feeling the ground beneath me move and watching everyone around me diving for cover. I'll never forget that experience. But it's been almost 20 years since then and we all need to build muscle memory so that in the next earthquake, we don't panic and run out the door or something and get hit by falling debris. So, do it for real with the Great Washington Shakeout on October 15th at 10.15 a.m. Plan ahead. Will your drill be at home, work, or elsewhere? Wherever you are, everyone in the state is encouraged to take a minute to drop, cover, and hold on, just like you would in a real earthquake. Again, the shakeout is scheduled for 10.15 a.m. on October 15th. Got that? 10.15 on 10.15. Easy to remember. You can learn more and get earthquake preparedness tips at shakeout.org Washington. Thank you to the Great Washington Shakeout for sponsoring this episode of Channel 253. We're back. So before I get back into deep discussions with Beth Dolio, I want to suggest and ask that those of you who enjoy these podcasts, if you have not yet become a member of Channel 253, please consider doing so. It's very inexpensive, $4 a month or $40 a year. You get access to all kinds of premium local content. You get to find out what everyone is talking about. And you also get special insider access to certain things like the Off the Record podcast that Doug has just started producing and doing. And Doug, what would be a little teaser of something interesting coming from Off the Record? Well, today I talked to Miss Audrey Cunningham from the What Say You podcast, and we kind of talked about how to survive COVID by watching our favorite television shows. And that sort of slipped into another uh, what I call my out of left field question, which is always a little <laughs> surprise. It's a 15 minute podcast, just a little bit of enjoyment for our members. Yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, I think you'll enjoy what Channel 253 has to offer. So please consider becoming a member. All right. Um, Beth, we were talking about healthcare and sort of related to that, although I think this is as much of an economic issue as a, as a health issue. Um, what, and you've mentioned sort of what the Senate in particular is failing to do with regard to uh, the coronavirus. And this is something that I have, I have a lot of deep feelings about this. I, you know, as citizens, we have a, um, a social contract with our government. We agree to come together to obey, obey rules, to pay our taxes with the goal of having an overarching structure in place for our safety and protection and the common welfare of 
the citizenry. That's in our constitution. And our federal government right now is failing to uphold their end of that bargain. We're in a crisis, a huge healthcare crisis. We have almost 200,000 people who have died. We are in an enormous economic crisis. We have families and businesses that are losing everything. And our government is not acting to take care of us. So what are your thoughts on the COVID-19 response? And what would you like to see change if you were able to go to D.C. and and talk some sense into them? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think there's a lot of good things in the HEROES Act. I think we need to really make sure that state and local governments um, who are facing, you know, diminished tax income, you know, income sales tax income, uh, you know, just, I mean, we're, we're being hit super hard here. Um, and that's, you know, that's education. Um, and so many more things, that's education, that's public health, that's, you know, investments in our infrastructure. I mean, so many things that the, that state and local governments do here on the ground. So that is a, that is a priority of any kind of a, a COVID bill, um, you know, COVID, COVID stimulus package or, or, you know, heroes type act. Um, I think, you know, we talked about small businesses at the beginning. Um, We have got to, you know, they're the very fabric of our community. They're what makes our communities tick and sing and, and, and bring us together, whether it's in an, in a theater or a restaurant or in a shop or, you know, whatever those small businesses really are the fabric of our community. And we should be, you know, prioritizing, making sure we're getting dollars um, to them. And also, one other really big thing for small businesses is that they are personally on the hook if they lose that business. Um, unlike corporations who are sort of shielded, um, they have to put their personal you know, wealth on the line in order to get those loans. And so I really think we need to address that. Um, you know, education, broadband, you know, clearly um, we've seen how, how uh, the inequities that we have in our communities around broadband. And, you know, frankly, I'm dealing with this in my own home, you know, my son now back on Zoom and, and at junior at Olympia High School. And unfortunately, we're sort of battling for Zoom time, you know, and he keeps, uh, he keeps going offline in the middle of, of, of um, being taught. So, uh, you know, and and we have pretty good options here. So there's so many communities that don't have that. Um, you know, in terms of putting people back to work and, you know, providing stimulus, I mean, I am really interested in, I mean, hopefully the Senate's going to do something here quickly to make sure that people have health care, that make sure people have um, unemployment benefits, to make sure that people, you know, can, can pay their rent or at least be, you know, not evicted. I mean, there's so many different levels to all of this, right? And people are out there hanging on by a thread. And so, you know, the federal government is the key to helping make sure that uh, working class families and families in general have the kinds of resources they need to, to, to keep food on their family's table. But as we look forward, we really need to build out, you know, we need to re, re-employ people and put people back to work. And, you know, my priorities there are rebuilding our, um, our uh, crumbling infrastructure and also building out the, the uh, clean energy future. And this is an opportunity, you know, who knew that we were gonna be in a climate crisis at the same time? Well, I knew we were gonna be in a climate crisis, right? But at the same time that we're having a pandemic, can we combine those two things and move forward, you know, a stimulus package like we did in 2008 uh, that is really focused on building out our fossil fuel, uh, our fossil free future. Um, so, you know, I think it's an opportunity. Um, I also think it's an opportunity to move towards a different kind of healthcare system um, because so many people have been, have lost their health insurance. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, with any crisis, you know, I think the, the, the word, the crisis actually often in other languages means opportunity. Um, and so hopefully we can take this crisis and make it an opportunity to change the way that this country operates and to really take back our nation and have it be a nation that supports families, working families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While I'm on the working families thing, I can't let this go by. It's really galling to me, and this is something that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to in Congress. The 1% of the population that controls 40% of our wealth versus the 80%, the rest of us, that control only 7% of the wealth in the country. That is fundamentally has to change. And so anything that we do along these lines, stimulus, 
COVID has to come along with a tax policy that, you know, taxes those people who are millionaires and are bringing in, you know, $32 million a year. We can, we can raise trillions of dollars just by uh, taxing, you know, a tenth of that 1% population. Um, so when anyone talks about how do we pay for it, how do we pay for the Green New Deal, how do we pay for a stimulus COVID package, how do we pay for Medicare for all, there's plenty of wealth in this country that can pay for those things. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I completely agree with your take on that. Would you, would you do a gradual buildup in the, in the taxes for the people who are in the, let's say, the top 10%, but even the top 25% of incomes? Or, or would you do something more drastic at the very top and, and then stagger it after that? I think I'd do something pretty drastic at the very top. Mm-hmm. It's really, they, that, that, I mean, if you have, um, these are amounts of money, I, I can't even, if you have, let's say, um, I don't know how much money they have now, it goes up every day. But let's say if you have $100 billion to your name, if, if, if you were taxed at a 50% rate, and this doesn't, this isn't the way taxes work, so it wouldn't happen. But let's suppose it did happen, and you were reduced to $50 billion. That, that is more money than you could ever possibly spend. I mean, that anyone could spend, anyone right. could, even if you were building new houses and buying airplanes every single day, it, right. it's an impossibly huge amount of money. Hmm. And at the same time, people who are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and are hanging on by a thread, those resources could go into helping those families with basic things like healthcare, mm-hmm. like family medical leave, like paid sick days, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, to me, it is the moral path that we need, that, that, that this nation should be on. Um, And, you know, I just, I I just think it's, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can't continue on. No. And, you know, I was talking yesterday to a a teacher and, you know, she's making $76,000 a year and her, um, I think her husband is not employed right now because he's about to enter a master's degree program. She had some unexpected expenses with healthcare related to her mother or something along those lines. And, you know, she's just barely getting by, right. um, you know, I mean, so, so that, that tells you, you know, folks who are making minimum wage, <laughs> they're not making $76,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not just getting by, you know, like she is. And so, you know, we really have to raise the minimum wage. Here again, this is a place where my opponent stood in the way of the $15 minimum wage campaign. And she's taking credit for it. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that for several years, there was no increase in the minimum wage. And those low-income families, those, those, those families who were making minimum wage could have made $6,000 more a year. Now that, maybe that could have helped get, you know, medicines or food on the table or, you know, books for kids, you know, $6,000 a year for a minimum wage worker. That's a lot of money. Um, That's a lot of money for anybody, but um, except for those billionaires we were just talking about, Um, you know, and and she stood in the way of, of, uh, you know, I would have been in there like, how do we make this happen? How can we be a leader in this nation? like Seattle, like SeaTac, in paying our minimum wage workers more. I, I, I want to be part of that change in this nation. And, you know, she stood in the way as mayor of, of really helping that to become a reality. Mm-hmm. One other sort of um, current um, national issue that has a lot, of, um, a lot of scope and impact here at home, too, is the um, issues with our um, policing um, and Black Lives Matter and the disproportionate and, and disproportionately violent responses of police to um, Black men and Black women. What are some of the things that, and again, we're sort of hearing crickets out of Congress on this, and, I, and that's not really fair for me to say, I should say, whatever um, the House comes up with the Senate either leaves to die on a desk or the president, you know, is, is saying he'll veto anyway, but 
what are some things that you would like to see change if you were to get into this congressional seat? Yeah, well, a lot of things. I mean, basically, we have to stand up to white supremacy and the institutional racism that we see in our country, which is very deep. And we need to change, make systematic changes to move us away from racism, classism, sexism, homophobia. Um, and, you know, that's just being stoked by Donald Trump. There's no question about it. Um, he's given people license to just be racist and sexist and homophobic and uh, classist. Um, and so, um, you know, we need leaders who call that out and who um, are committed to making policy through a racial justice lens, really making sure that anything that you're doing is, you know, has the impacted um, people engaged in it and that, that you're constantly looking um, through, you know, at policy through a racial justice lens. Now on the specific issue of police use of force, um, clearly this is, you know, a lot of people, people of color do not, or people with mental health issues um, or developmentally disabled people do not feel safe mm. in our current system and the way that that operates. And I know that, that, that is, that, 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 that is not the intention of police forces, of community police forces. We need to create a system where people feel safe in their communities. And when there are two young black men shot by a police officer in this community, in my community, Olympia, unarmed, mm -hmm. one case of beer, one of them will spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. The Black Alliance of Thurston County and many others joining them realize this malice issue in our law. We have the worst law in the books in terms of having to prove malice to have any kind of police accountability. And so I worked alongside them trying to change the law in the legislature when I was running for office. And then when I got elected, came to me and said, we want you to run a bill on this. And we want it to be the very first bill of the session. So it was my first bill, House Bill 1000. It was also the first bill of the session in 2017. And ultimately, it was a bill that led to, um, you know, help, helped on the path to getting to 940 on the ballot and getting it passed. Now, that's just a drop in the bucket, what 940 does. Um, it does, you know, it does a lot of really good things. And those things are just starting to really come into play. Um, and we have seen, you know, the first sort of, you know, police officer who is likely to be held accountable under 940, uh, the Auburn, the Auburn situation. Um but, you know, there's so many things that are simple that were in the, the, the Justice for Policing Act, you know, um, uh, no-knock warrants, we should eliminate. Chokeholds, we should eliminate. Um, we need to make sure that our police forces have training in implicit bias. And not just a one-shot deal, but a long-term commitment to it. I mean, it's a long-term commitment for me and for you. You know, it is, we are conditioned. We have, that's what implicit bias is. And we have to root it, you know, we have to understand it, challenge ourselves and root it out. Um, and, uh, you know, and we need, you know, we need to have that in our policies, right? Um, in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. I think so. I, I think you're right. It is very difficult. I mean, you can, you can make some of the legal changes. You can get rid of the um, requirement that there be malice before there's a successful prosecution um, for a police officer who has killed someone. Uh, and I think that is important because I think not ever, you know, to know when you go out every day to do your job that you will not face consequences for something that you do mm -hmm. is not good. That is right. just not good. Um, at the same time, um, as you've noted, it's so deep in us. You know, we are a nation that was, um, you know, people don't like to say it this way, but this is the truth. We were built on racism. We were built on an assumption that coming in as a white settler, coming in as a white immigrant from Europe, that we were superior and that it was right and approved by um, religion that we should impose our will on others, um, be it the indigenous population or the African population that was imported to do our labor. 
And I just, you know, we have such a hard time being honest about that. And if we can't be honest about that, I don't know how you begin to address it and, and really have someone like me, a white woman who's, you know, middle-class in her fifties, how I can have, you know, I need to always be saying, you know, why am I reacting this way? Why is my assumption about this person, this thing? And is it because of my racism? And, you know, I don't know. I think it's a really hard one, but it's so important. And it, and it, and it, is ingrained in so many, it's our, in our housing, it's in our healthcare, it's in our tax system. It's in, you know, it's, it's in us everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it runs very deep. And I mean, that's, you know, 400 years of, you know, of basically, I mean, you know, we just, we got off on that start in this country with slavery. Yeah. Um, we have so, so much work to do to undo it. Yeah, um, it does start, you know, it starts with us um, really recognizing that we are racist and that we have, you know, um, biases based on the way that we were socialized. And, um, you know, I'm committed to to working to understand that within me and to rooting it out and, and, and you know, challenging myself every day to figure out a different path forward. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, Beth, you've highlighted some areas where you have pretty stark differences with your opponent, uh, Marilyn Strickland. One would be in um, your plans and your thoughts on housing and homelessness. Another would be health care and Medicare for all uh, and also on wage issues and um, I would say working family issues. This is kind of, you know, these questions are very simplistic, but I think they are important. But um, what makes you the better choice for this district? What makes you someone who has sort of more um, labor focused, environmental focused, working family focused um, uh, perspectives? What makes you the better candidate for this congressional seat? Well, in addition to the values that you sort of laid out, you know, I definitely am, um, definitely feel like I have been, you know, I am more of an advocate for um, the working class. I am more of an advocate and have, you know, a proven track record on um, challenging the, the status quo on climate change and actually getting things done and passing bills. Um, and uh you know, even on police accountability, um, you know, I have a strong record on police accountability. And um, so I think, you know, we, we had that conversation, but, but overall, you know, I'm a listener, a collaborative collaborator, and ultimately I really get things done. You know, I passed a lot of pieces of landmark legislation, whether it was on climate or environment, housing, workers' rights, women's rights, um, you know, community priorities. I was able to bring a lot of funding into my community and into my district, um, whether that was housing or natural resources or, um, you know, specific projects that my community was taking on. I tenaciously, I tenaciously work day in and day out to make sure that when people come into me and ask me to take action, I take action and I get it done. And I have an unmatched track record of standing up for working people and, uh, and for, for change, for, for uh, you know, really challenging the status quo and making change. And also, like you said, on housing, you know, and it, and it is for this reason that I'm the only candidate who has been endorsed by firefighters, healthcare workers, frontline workers, essential workers, um, they know that I will have their backs in Washington, D.C. And so they have put their support behind me. Um, and I'm ready to go. And I'm ready to, you know, work hard to represent every corner, every person in this congressional district. I, think, I mean, that, that's just one of the things, you know, 
I can't, you can't get landmark legislation done unless you're able to work across your caucus and across the aisle. And I have done that. I've built those relationships and I have successfully negotiated in those rooms where people come out and they're like, I see myself in this policy. And that's those listening and negotiating skills that I have that I want to bring to Congress to make a difference in people's lives here in the 10th Congressional District and across the nation. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, sounds, that sounds pretty good. Uh, are there any other things that you'd like to tell us about or talk about that we haven't had a chance to touch on today? Well, I definitely encourage you to go to my website. You know, it's www.bethdolio.com. Um, this is, you know, a very challenging race. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, there are some stark differences. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities. We do have a very, very strong, fun grassroots campaign um, that I would encourage people to get engaged in. Um, And, you know, please, if you have any questions about where I am on anything, I I encourage you to reach out to the campaign and, um, and I can, you know, we can, we can talk through any kinds of issues that you might have. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk today. And it is hard to to meet people in this pandemic. I mean, I feel like, huh, I, I want to go see people and be in person, but it's nice to have opportunities like this to at least um, hopefully have some folks listen in and hear a little bit more about who I am, what I hope to bring to the office of uh, 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 Congress. Good, good. Well, I really appreciate it. And I do, I do sort of feel like, yeah, it's not perfect, but at least it gives people a uh, a little bit more time with you and a, an opportunity to listen to what you're all about. And then they can reach out if they want more information. So I will put your campaign um, email up with the show notes and um, awesome. good luck. Good awesome. luck. Yeah. Count, counting down now. All right. There's 53 days. Okay. 53 days left. We are counting down. Well, that is it for this week's Crossing Division. If you have ideas for other episodes, please send me an email or find me on Twitter. I am at true underscore Tacoma, or you can email me truetacoma at gmail.com. That's it. Thank you both. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.